Nobody knows what the bees actually are doing. So nobody knows what the impact of beekeeping on biodiversity is overall. And that's something that we get very, very excited about. Because if, if there was a value to biodiversity, if there was a marketplace for biodiversity, people would have an incentive to protect biodiversity. And that is currently not happening. Welcome to Made in the High Country, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Western North Carolina's entrepreneurial landscape and the people within it. I'm Samantha Wright, and today on our show, how one man who was born in Germany has traveled to over 45 countries and speaks six languages wound up living in, of all places, Boone, North Carolina and dedicated himself to helping solve one of the largest threats our world is facing today, biodiversity decline. Today, we're talking with Max Runzel, the CEO and co-founder of HiveTracks, a software-as-a-service company that's creating a planet-positive impact, one healthy bee at a time. HiveTracks began with James Wilkes, professor of computer science at Appalachian State University, family farmer, and enthusiastic beekeeper living in Creston, North Carolina. James created the first version of HiveTracks in 2010 as a simple app that allowed experienced and new beekeepers the tools to better keep track of and care for their beehives. Since that time, HiveTracks has grown into a full-blown venture startup raising over $1 million in investment capital and securing government funding worth over a half a million dollars. HiveTrax has grown far beyond a simple beekeeping app. Its software has globally significant potential around topics of colony collapse, food security, climate change, and biodiversity decline. Using bees as biosensors, HiveTrax is unlocking an urgently needed source of environmental intelligence and data that's natural, scalable, and available. We start by getting to know HiveTrack's current CEO and co-founder, Max Runzel, who joined the company in 2020 as an enthusiastic partner with a passion for agriculture, economics, and world traveling. It was quite interesting um, to get my visa uh, for the U.S., right? So being a foreign citizen, it was very hard. And we worked for like one and a half years uh, to, to, to get me here. And maybe the, the, the interesting story now always is that, you know, when I get to border control and they see my visa and they see it's like a, it's like a, um, it's a visa that's, that's for extraordinary aliens. So I'm officially like by the U.S. government, I'm an extraordinary alien. So they always question me. And it's really cool when you fly into Charlotte and you get to border control and they're like, okay, who are you, German fella? What are you doing here? And it's like, well, I live in Boone. That's like the first one when they go like, oh, I was there this weekend or I know somebody. And they're like, and you work on bees. Oh, wow. You know, my grandfather used to and this and that. So it's really cool how like the the, the toughness of, 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 of the people who are looking at my passport and wondering what I'm, what I'm up to. 
to uh, how they just you know usually end up with a smile because I'm either telling them about the high country or about about the bees. Yeah, and you get to call yourself an extraordinary alien. And, I mean. and I'm a, and I'm an extraordinary alien exactly. <laughs> Oh, I love that. That's hilarious. So it's one of the extraordinary things about you, the fact that you speak several languages. Like how do you, when you're learning a new language, how do you approach learning a new language? It's it's like the little cookies you collect while you travel the world. And, and, and I've always, I've always been very eager to live with families. So my means of like learning a language was usually through the customs and not so much through the books. So that's of course, you know, Swedish, English and German uh, from from the beginning uh, because of my, my, my family history. And then I learned uh, French a little bit in school. And then I when I did my master's, I was doing it with a group of solely French people. So that kind of got me exposed to that group. And I, I picked up French. Uh, then I learned Spanish in Argentina. Uh, when I was down there. And then I learned Italian while living in Rome. There again, I rented a room uh, from a lady who didn't speak a word of English. So it was tough the first two months. And then kind of we, we ran with it. And that's, yeah, language is just really, it's, it's, it's a big part of my identity and, and what, I, what I love. And you were living in Rome then because of your job at the United Nations, correct? Well, what did you do when you were working at the United Nations? Um, there I was a, yeah, an agribusiness consultant, actually. So I worked with smallholder producers. So it was all about how can we empower smallholder producers. And I was in the research and extension unit, working with farmers to increase yields, to get to better practices. And, and that's what we did with smallholder producers, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, South America, and a little bit in Southeast Asia, which was, which was a lot of fun, but it also showed the limits to this type of work, right? Because they were handing out handouts or having downloadable PDFs. And that, of course, is very cumbersome for a farmer to like take something into the field and like use a Sharpie or a marker to go through the knowledge. So that's, that's where I started to understand. It's like, hey, can, what can data help? You know, what can software, uh, software do? And the, the, exciting, the exciting moment then was there was a, since beekeeping was one of the areas that we worked on on this, on this platform for smallholder producers. So we, our unit or part of our unit organized a roundtable uh, on how bee data can help with the sustainable development goals. It was through this roundtable that Max connected with the founders of HiveTracks. They hit it off, collaborated on a few projects, and in 2020, Max officially came on board to the HiveTracks team as the CEO and co-founder. Max, how would you explain HiveTracks to a kindergartner? Well, there's there's two aspects to hive tracks, right? The first one is we help beekeepers keep their bees healthier, right? Bees need love, bees need help, bees need food, bees need care, and that's what the app helps you with. So the app tells you what you should be doing when to ensure that the bees are happy and uh, collect nectar and produce a lot of honey. The second aspect about what we do for a kindergartner is, you know, bees travel, bees forage thousands of acres and touch upon every flower, almost every flower that is in that in that area. And in doing so, they collect little pollen and they collect, collect nectar. And so if the bees are not doing well, that's almost a bio indicator of how the environment is doing. 
since they, you can almost think about, they speak or they censor all these flowers. And if there's an issue because there has been, um, no pesticide use or a climatic event, uh, that's something that the, that the bees take up upon. And that's how we use the health of the bees as almost like a thermometer for the health of the environment. Almost like little data collectors going out there and bringing the data back. Tell me more about that data collection side of hive tracks and the applications for that. Yeah, that's the one that gets me incredibly excited because basically, um, while we solve this initial problems for beekeepers, which is keeping, you know, helping them with their operation, helping them with their, uh, with the health of their bees, we create data about the bees and we collect data on the environment of these apiaries. And through that data collection, there's a couple things that, that we can do. First off is anything about the veracity and the proof of origin of honey. So when you think about it, honey is actually one of the products in the world that is the most, they call it adulterated, right? So it's one of the the fake foods almost. So oftentimes when you uh, buy honey and the price is very low, be wary because it may be that that is, has been cut or that there is some syrup that is added to it. So here, a big shout out, always go to your local beekeeper to get, to get your honey. So again, but if we have the data on where the apiaries are, on the interactions of the beekeeper uh, with, um, with the hive, we can customize a profile, a digital profile of the origin of the honey. And that's allow- that allows us to prove the origin of where the honey came from to enable the beekeeper to differentiate their product and collect a higher margin as they make it identifiable. So that can be a QR code or an NFC tag on a jar of honey for any consumer to see and to know where it comes from. So besides the proof of origin authentication, uh, what we've also seen, and you know, part of our work, so we work in, with individual beekeepers and beekeeping businesses, but we also work with governments. So a few of our government contracts have been to work with women beekeepers in Ethiopia and Uzbekistan to use beekeeping as a tool that enhances their livelihoods in two ways, right? So on the one hand, you get to produce honey, Uh, On the other hand, it helps with the local agriculture as the pollination helps with the yields of their their production. And what happens a lot in, in countries like Ethiopia is that they have a hard time accessing financial products, right? So to get a credit or to get a microcredit, they sometimes aren't banked or they don't have the data to back up that they would be able to repay their loans. And that's where we've realized that Hivetrax data can help because the Hivetrax data allows them to realize or allows to prove how much honey they have been producing year over year, which is like a pre-screening requirement for a financial institution that wants to lend. And then they need to know, they need some assurance that these the, 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 the smallholder producers receiving the loans will have the capacity to repay. And that's what our data can do because it shows, look, this is the, this is the number of hives across how many apiaries, which could then enable, you know, a $50 loan, $150 loan. It's really micro loans that we're talking about, but the data can help um, telling the, the, the lenders that this is a, a safe person, a safe beekeeper to, to, to give a fund to or give a loan to. That's amazing. What what kind of impact has that program had so far? Or is it a little too soon to tell? I think it's it's a little bit on the on the on the soon side. However, there's a few things that are quite fascinating because many of the beekeepers that we work with had never used a smartphone before. 
So as part of, uh, of our work, we had digital literacy trainings. So we, when we started, these women had never used a, a smartphone. And towards the end of, of, of the first year, they were starting to send around screenshots and be part of a group chat and like talking about beekeeping problems and beekeeping things, helping each other out. So that has helped tremendously. And then also something that we've done, we've done dozens of user sessions between our UX UI designer and the women beekeepers in Ethiopia and a translator. So we actually made sure when we localized the app that all the designs, all the icons, all of that were inclusive so that uh, the, the women and men beekeepers down there with their local context would be able to use it and use it comfortably. And that's such an important step. I think a lot of startups can skip sometimes. They make a lot of assumptions sometimes about the design, the words that are being used, the icons, right? If you're not getting that constant feedback from the people who you want to actually use your app or your product, your service, then you don't know who you might be excluding accidentally or not. And so that's a mistake that you don't want to make. Now, from a um, a purpose-driven side, how do you explain to people the value of empowering these beekeepers with this data? And, and is that a struggle that you have to convince people sometimes that this is all, you know, kind of worth it? So the, the large problem right now is that we know that biodiversity decline is one of the largest threats our world is facing. The problem is that we're completely flying blind. We don't know how dramatic biodiversity decline is. We know that it's bad, but we only know it for certain aspects in the world. And that's where, where, where Hivetrex comes in to building a marketplace for crowdsourced biodiversity data. One of the key pillars, the central pillars of biodiversity is, is pollination, which is what bees are doing on a diversity of plants. So keeping track of plants, keeping track of bees and how they pollinate is our step towards getting to a marketplace for crowdsourced biodiversity data. And that's something that got me particularly excited in Ethiopia. When you think about what these, women's, these women and men down there are doing, and if they could get paid for that as part of their work that they do to restore biodiversity, to, to save the climate, um, that's something that everybody benefits from, even us here. So, the, you know, beekeepers play a huge role in all of this at the intersection between nature and nature and humanity. And, and I think that's something that is currently not being rewarded as it should. So, Max, I'm curious now, I want to get a little bit of behind-the-scenes input on the, the financial side of Hivetrax and, and get some tips for entrepreneurs that are, that are in a position of creating a startup, uh, maybe a tech startup, an app uh, like Hivetrax or, or something else. But it, my understanding is uh, James Wilkes began Hivetrax in uh, 2010, and it reached profitability about two years later in 2012 as this beekeeping app and it was uh, enough to sort of sustain a, a one employee type small business. Uh, how much do you know about the decisions that were made between that time and when you came on board around 2020, uh, those decisions about what those next steps should be and, and should we raise money? Should we take on investors? Should we scale? Uh, all those tough decisions that 
entrepreneurs need to make when there's they've sort of reached a point of all right I can either kind of stay where I'm at which is this comfortable yet maybe smaller position or should I go further should I scale up no that is that's a that's a great thought and I James and I have talked about this a lot because for him kind of me arriving in this and 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 appearing in the picture was let's just say it was very good timing because they had been for about two years. So from 2018 to 2020 uh, or, or 17 to 19, about when we met, they had been thinking about, you know, it's like Hive Texas as a good, as a, at a good point. What, where do we go from here? Right. What do we, what, what do we do? What are the different options that we have for a profitable business to go in one direction or the other? And they had, you know, James had always had this, this thought about, you know, what it would take to, to scale it, what it would take to, to go further. And then also, I mean, much of the technology leapfrogging happened in that time, right? So when it started in 2010, um, I'm Samantha, not sure if what you if you remember what time of smart what type of telephone or cell phone you had in 2010, right? So it was like the whole mobile app world didn't exist the same way as it is today. I remember, you know, back then I had, you know, you downloaded a messaging app like like WhatsApp and you had like eight, eight, you know, eight contacts in it. It was just something that was that was picking up. So it took till yeah. about or now it's sort of taken for granted that there is an app for everything. You know, if I were to be- decide today, oh, I want to become a beekeeper, I'd probably the first thing that would come to my mind was, oh, I wonder if there's an app for that. And that's the sort of the culture we're in right now. So James, they were really forward thinking back in 2010 to say, like, let's make an app for beekeepers. I mean, that that was not as pervasive in the zeitgeist as it is right now. No, no, no. And thanks for using a German word there. I love that. <laughs> no, the, the, I do what the, I can. Exactly. No, they, they, and they started with a web, with a web platform, right? And then they, they launched a mobile app after that. And then, and, you know, it was, it started to pick up, right? It started to, you know, there was also connectivity issues with the internet that were a problem. I mean, we still have that some, sometimes where you don't have the, the, the internet connection on your phone that you would like to have. But this, like, the technology needed to evolve and, and, and to get to a point where they felt comfortable. And then I know, you know, James was telling me they had for the, for, for about a year and a half or so before they met me, uh, there had been you know talks and conversations around like you know how can we scale this? What people can we get together uh, to 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 make Hivetrex Hivetrex grow? So this serendipitous meeting in in Rome, Italy, in 2019 uh, was yeah was 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 very good timing on all fronts, I would say. And I believe part of that journey was the scale up course, right? That uh, Startup High Country uh, had offered. That um, I know we've interviewed Tim Herklotz from Boonshine. They took that course, and Hive Tracks was in that same cohort as well, and they made some great connections there. So it seems like James was on that mindset of how to scale this thing, and and taking that scale up course gave him some good insights into ways to do that and then um and then meeting you was sort of this uh meant to be moment i think and i think also the scale up program just um yeah acclimated james with this thought of what it would take to 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 think about it and to make it grow a little bit uh a little bit larger so for for him to be you know to be ready to to accept that and this was for me too was like when i when i joined in i saw you know all the love and the work that James had put into into building Hive Tracks and into setting setting it up, and then also of course what would what would this tool for beekeepers with a with a with a strong brand recognition 
what would that what could that be if we combined it you know with my background from the un working with the governments taking a more global approach hivetrex was already used uh globally but what were what ha- what would happen if we worked with local implementation partner across different countries to give it that local aspect and then of course to give it a, a data spin right so to think about how do we what what other derivative products be it you know the proof of authentication or the biodiversity monitoring or even the access to credit or access to microfinancing what other derivative use cases of the data can we set up that this could become relevant for 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 yeah everybody in the world or for a much 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 more significant market and that's what what we've been working over the last two years now and what this the current funding round is all about So let's talk about that that current when you say current funding round um there are many iterations of funding for a a scalable venture like this that kind of behind the scenes nitty gritty side of this is something that feels a bit mysterious for those that have never been through it before so if you could you know do the entrepreneurs out there a favor that might be in a similar position um as Hivetrax was in those early years of having a great idea, but you know how, how to get things launched from a capital perspective and what are those, those things you've learned through this process about uh, raising capital that you think those early entrepreneurs should know about? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question, Samantha. And I think so, you know, the, the traditional, at least in the software world, right, where kind of, you know, the, the SaaS, the software as a service world is is scale is 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 all or it is all about scale right the the beauty of software is that once it's been created there's there's virtually almost no limitations to how many people can use it right so of course you have to um you you know you have to support it and you have to make sure that you can handle the amount of data and that your infrastructure is in place however from 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 a setup generally speaking that's why you know software companies or the the, the companies that have grown the largest or the, the most over the last 10 to 15 years tend to be uh, tend to be software companies in one way or the other um and the 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 normal means of of being able to scale is to see what are what are a few of the wins that you can show with a small amount of money to grow your company and add money back in right so each funding round is supposed to grow with the growth of your business so the better you are at showcasing a little bit of growth like a proof of concept in the very beginning the easier it is to take on new funding and work through it so in Traditionally, it's, you know, you start with a pre-seed round, you go to a seed round, and then you would go to a series A, B, C, all the way through to an IPO if you wanted to. And the, the game basically always is how, how much traction can I, can I show with what I'm currently doing and how much can I show that I'm able to maintain this traction in some way. And I'm saying traction because it doesn't necessarily need to be revenues. There's a lot of companies that... Uh, you know that have phenomenal valuations without uh, without being profitable um, 
But traction can also specifically at an early stage, it can be a long list of email addresses that sign up for something that you put out there. You know, there's a tool where you say, okay, I'm, I'm planning on launching this and I'm looking for people to help me. And that's a way to, to gather a thousand, to gather two thousand, to gather three thousand addresses that build kind of the credibility around what you're what you're trying to do. So that is mostly about, you know, what can you validate? What can you do? And for us in particular, what has helped us was the, the government contracts that we got to, to close early on. So be it a grant or a government contract, this is something that you can, uh, that you can get to um, before or in combination with your regular revenues, your recurring revenues that you have. And that is another way of like, if you can show that you've been able to get to funding from a number of customers or an entity that basically proves and validates your business case. And that's what you, that's what you want to do with each funding round. Whenever you can validate a certain point and you can prove the, the story and show the traction and where it can go, that is where it becomes interesting for external investors. Now, there's lots of different ways that a company or a startup can fund those early years and keep funding their growth. You can keep really scrappy and sort of self-fund. Though as you go, you can go to a bank and ask for a loan. You can take on investors or you can do some form of crowdfunding or crowdsourcing. Um, so what avenues has HiveTrax uh, gone through for capital and, and why did they make those decisions? Yeah, we've done we've done a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of, of, of almost all of the above, I would say. So in the in the pre-seed round, uh, what we've done is we've used so-called convertible notes. Right. So we've um, because, you know, the, the, the we work towards getting uh, a valuation that is sustained by our revenues. And the moment you sell equity in your company, you lock in the valuation of the company. So you kind of, you limit the, the amount of growth that you can have. So when you use any type of convertible notes or safe notes, that allows you to postpone the question of what my company is worth, what the valuation is going to be like. And that's what we used in the pre-seed round with convertible notes. And that's also what we do in the seed round currently with our safe notes. And they're actually, um, for the, the, the seed round that we currently do, we try something that you could almost call, you know, non-conventional or non-traditional, which is that we use a crowd equity investment campaign as part of our seed round. So, that in a, essentially a, a few years ago, um, the the SEC changed regulations there. That like the the traditional investor regulations in the U.S. they had been you know very old. It's like Roosevelt uh, times when they had started, where you have to fill out a questionnaire to be an accredited investor, and you know the government wanted to make sure that only accredited investors are able to 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 use their funds for a risky or investment purposes. Um, However, then finally, um, the, the SET issued new regulation for a regulation that's called Reg FC, uh, sorry, Reg CF, which is the regulation crowdfunding. 
And that allows even unaccredited investors, so anybody out there, to invest smaller amounts through different platforms that are out there. And what we did is within our seed round, under the same terms, we have the common route, which is Reg D for accredited investors for larger ticket sizes. And then for smaller ticket sizes, we have a, a profile on one of the crowd equity uh, investment uh, platforms that has allowed us to to raise money from uh, money from friends, families, customers, anybody in our network locally who would like to support us with smaller amounts, starting at a hundred dollars. Actually, we've just hit our first milestone on WeFunder, which was very exciting. So that's been that that has been great. So we're in the middle of raising funds, which is always a stressful endeavor for for any investor, and it's like the the best roller coaster you can be on because there's like one email that says you got the funds, let's go. And the other email that says, no, sorry, I have to pass on this opportunity. And that is that is something that, you know, every entrepreneur, of course, knows that this like euphoria and, 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 and sadness are like very, 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 very close, close by with each other. And but that is that's just showing a very, very interesting pathway. And we're incredibly excited about the new beekeeping, which is just taking off here in uh, in the northern hemisphere, at least. Very cool. Now, is the the WeFunder round over, or can people still own a little chunk of Hive Tracks? People can still own a little chunk of Hive Tracks. So that's uh, we, it's going to be live until the end of April. So we have about you know five, five and a half more weeks. Uh, so that's yeah, and that's that's really exciting. No, yeah, that's super exciting. I love the thought of uh, just your everyday person being able to actually own a little piece of uh, a company like this. It's super exciting. So I'll put a link to that below in the show notes, make it easy for people to find there and on our website. And for those that are not familiar with what crowdfunding is, I know you gave a great explanation, but it's kind of this whole new world. We're a bit in the wild west of it. Uh, WeFunder, which is where your crowdfunding campaign is live, has a lot of really great resources. So again, we'll put a link to that below in the show notes and on our website as well. Well, Max, this has been so illuminating. I have loved learning a little bit more about you and about the journey that Hive Tracks has been on and where you guys are going. It's all so exciting. Um, before you go, we always like to ask our guest a little bit about what life is like here in the high country. And as someone as well world traveled as you, I'm really curious to hear your answer. You know, what are some of the things you like about living in the high country? No, that's that's a very good question. And I, you know, I, I have to admit, Samantha, it's like when I told my European and German and, and you know national friends that I was leaving Rome, Italy, or Berlin, Germany to go to Boone, North Carolina, there's a few people who have, you know, who may have questioned my sanity here or there. But, and here comes the interesting component to it, that last fall I had both my Swedish cousin was here and my sister, uh, one of my two sisters was here. And they too came here and we only needed to go to one or two places and travel like a little bit on the parkway. And they were like, Max, we get you. It's like, this is this. No, no, no. This makes sense. We see, we see, we see it now. So again, I, I, um, there's lots of things that I, that I, that I adore about, about living up here. And it's, it's, it's definitely the proximity to, to, to the outdoors and just being able, you know, in the summer is only, 15, 20 minutes and you can be on a lake with your paddleboard and have a, a formidable time uh, or being at the top of a mountain or just, you know, on the, on the, on the parkway. 
The other big aspect that I like a lot is just, you know, what you would kind of call the agri-food system. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of the High Country Food Hub. Uh, I'm a big fan of the farmer's market here locally. And that's just a remarkable infrastructure that is that is that is hard to find in other places and even in in, in many european or, or international communities that i've lived in it's like being able to consume food that you know the person who produced it is something that is it uh, that's that's quite advanced and really really sustainable and something that i get excited about and then i think the third component about like what makes the high country the high country is uh, it's a lot about community and that's that's an interesting one when you live in a larger city so much about your identity it's about um, hating the place you live in or complaining about the place you live in because you know there is always a traffic issue or a weather issue or this or that and and that is something that I've I've come to realize here in Boone that it's it's very nice to live in a place where everybody's like yeah I live here because I love it or I moved here because I loved it or I moved here because I fell in love when I came so and so many years ago and I, have, I haven't left since and that's a uh, that's 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 very refreshing to make that part of the identity of, of a local community. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. This episode was produced and edited by me, Samantha Wright, Community Director at Startup High Country. Learn more about our workshops, resources, events, and more at startuphc.com. Startup High Country is supported by NC Idea, a private foundation that supports entrepreneurship in North Carolina through grants and innovative programs. Thank you to the Otaga Economic Development Center for their support and for helping to build the entrepreneurial landscape of Western North Carolina. If you are interested in interviewing on or interning with us here at the podcast, send me a message. I can be reached at samantha at startuphc.com. I'm Samantha Wright, and you've been listening to Made in the High Country.